From lifestyle, fitness, beauty, travel, relationships, and self-care, Steph's got you covered. Welcome to your safe space, where you can stop what you're doing, relax, and let someone else do the heavy lifting for once. This is the Luxury Dropout Podcast with your host, Stephanie Joplin. What's up, fellow dropout? Stephanie Joplin here with another episode. Today, we are going to talk to my longtime friend, Rosie Abrams. She is a PR maven who lives in Boston, Massachusetts, but hails originally from Ohio and then Las Vegas, which is where she and I first met. Today, we spoke about some really heavy topics with regards to relationships, divorce in your mid-30s, and what are some of the telltale signs that it is time to move on from your relationship. And we also spoke about her amazing, extensive career in public relations, starting from when she was just 21, 22 years old, packing up all her things and moving across the country to Las Vegas. She created opportunities for herself, built her own brand on her back. And now she's at the top of her game, handling all of the public relations completely from start to finish, being the spokesperson of Encore Boston Harbor, which is a $2.6 billion company. Rosie gives some great advice for any young aspiring PR candidate also talks a lot about how when we struggle in our lives, sometimes that is when we're growing the most. So sit back, relax, grab a snack, and enjoy as I talk to Rosie Abrams on the Luxury Dropout Podcast. All right, fellow dropouts, welcome Rosie to the podcast. We haven't talked in such a long time. It's been at least maybe more than a year since we have really caught up, but let's tell the listeners a little bit about our background, how we know each other and how we met. And then we'll hop into all about you. Can you tell us your first memory of us together? <laughs> well, of course, obviously, it's one of my most fun stories on how I met a person. You know, it, as we get older, it's so hard to meet people that you like really connect with and become really good friends with. So I just think it was total fate for us to meet that day. <laughs> it was. It was at work, but we didn't work together. Uh, we were filming for, we were doing a the whole show actually with Andrew Zimmern. We were doing Bizarre Foods with Andrew Zimmern. He was coming to Las Vegas to film at a variety of places. One of them was at the Win Las Vegas where I worked at the time. And this beautiful goddess of a woman was there with him. And I was like, who is this girl? And we just started chatting during like behind the scenes during filming. And it was love at first sight. Mm -hmm. And to date us, the thing that first brought us together, I think that I commented on was your big bun, your big sock bun on the top of your head. So that dates us a little bit. I mean, what is that? 10 years? I, I'm pretty sure that's like about 10 years. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, I agree. Like I just saw this beautiful goddess and like walk in with her sock bun and this, you're wearing a blue dress. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it was blue. And I was like, God, look at this woman just commanding the room and commanding all these people that are filming this TV show. And I was like, who is she? I must know who she is. And then, yeah, Andrew's, that whole thing with Andrew Zimmer was so random. We were like BFF on Twitter and he just invited me. He's like, Hey, I'm going to be in Vegas. Like you used to live here, right? Come on out. I'm like, cool. 
And you know what the thing is, is like, I thought he was going to be another one of those dudes that was like trying to get in my pants for lack of a better term. And he never did. He never once tried anything. He's such a gentleman. He has been sober for like 20 years. He took me to sushi. We had like the best dinner. And then we like went up to his suite at the Cosmo and just talked for like two hours. So he's a really like a genuinely nice person. I'm glad he to really say. He really is. Really, really is. You know, sometimes you meet celebrities or, and they often disappoint, but he did not. He was so sweet, such a gentleman. And I honestly, I mean, honestly, I didn't know you. And so I thought at that time, I was like, oh, well, this is his like sidekick or whatever that he brought to Vegas. Because I'm like, what? This is weird. This is really weird. And then obviously, you know, got to know you and spent the day with him. And I'm like, this doesn't track. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> so sweet and kind. Like, there's no way that, that like, I don't know. This is so strange. And she's beautiful and here. And like, I don't know. This is weird. But I love her. <laughs> I think it says a lot about my self confidence the fact that I thought he was bringing me there because he was only attracted to me. And like now thinking back, I'm like, no, like, of course he would want me there. I'm really fucking cool. Like I'm cool to hang out with. I know a lot about food, like whatever. (laughs) So, okay. You talked about being at Wynn, but your career in PR basically started like right out of the gate, right out of college. You went to hospitality school, right? Actually, I went to school for PR. Oh, you went to school for PR? Okay. I think, by the way, I think your bio says hospitality. I mean, I wrote it, so I would hope it doesn't. I hope I think maybe I, I, <laughs> you know, I made that up. I always knew I wanted to be in hospitality. So that's how it ended up. Maybe I misread it. So you went to school for PR. So obviously you're using your degree still to this day, which is amazing. And you went to Ohio State. Ohio State. Okay, good. That's right. I'm like, God forbid I say the wrong Ohio college. She's going to kill me. <laughs> the only one that matters. Right. Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> I know nothing about Ohio besides that you're from there. That's literally the only thing that brings value to my life from Ohio currently. <laughs> so you packed up your stuff. You drove across the country to Vegas to get your start in PR. Now, why did you pick Vegas over like LA, say? So when I was younger, I lived in Las Vegas with my family. So I lived there seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, 10th grade. So four years I lived there. My best friend in the world, who you know, Kelly was from there. Her family was there. And honestly, it just felt more like familiar and less scary than going to a city that I didn't know, even though it was a lot further away than maybe like a New York or Chicago. I'd never spent a lot of time in those cities. And so I felt like I kind of knew Vegas and I had a little bit of support there. Also, there was a lot more going on in hospitality in Las Vegas than there was in Columbus, Ohio. So yeah, I packed up my car, my cat. I remember that I had like 13 boxes I shipped out. I packed up Gato and RIP Gato, but I packed up Gato and we, we made our trek across the country and I did up in Las Vegas and I was there for 12 years almost. So you started in like the smaller boutique PR firms. Now I actually did a very small internship when I, I think I was in college at UNLV and I did this. I don't even, I don't remember what company it was, but I just remember they were having me do grunt work, like bitch work, like driving around and like talking to people and, you know, talking about things, networking and things like that. So tell us a little bit about first starting in the PR industry and like the grunt work and all of kind of the ass kissing. Is there a lot of that going on that you have to do to kind of like get in the door in a certain way or not really? Uh, Yeah, there's a fair amount of that. So 
I didn't have a job when I moved out there. I had no prospects even. I had been a part of a group in college called the Public Relations Student Society of America. And so there's an adult, like a professional version of that, the Public Relations Society of America. So I decided to like be resourceful. I looked on their website. I was just looking at the Las Vegas chapter and I saw that they were having like a young professionals like networking mixer. And I was like, okay, well, I don't know anybody here. I don't have a job. I don't have a business card. I have nothing. So I just me. So I'm going to go to this mixer and like maybe meet some people and just network a little bit. So I went to this mixer. It was at Raw Sushi at the Fashion Show Mall. We all know it. We all know it. (laughs) Vegas knows it. And so I went there and I met actually my first boss who became my first boss. Her name is Michelle Tell. She had an agency in Vegas called Preferred Public Relations. And she and I were chatting and she was like, wait, so you don't have a job. You just moved here from Ohio. You just packed up your shit and you're here now. And you're at this event because you just want to meet people. And I'm like, for you. Yeah, pretty much. And she was like, wow. And she was just so impressed by the fact that like, I did that, that she was like, come to my office. I'm not really hiring, but like, let's talk. So I came, I went to her office like the couple days later and she, I mean, she made a position for me. She hired me basically on the spot because she was just like, could not believe that I did that. So honestly, I mean, I feel like so blessed to have met her and felt like, you know, obviously I was in the right place at the right time. But yeah, I mean, that really just kind of goes to show like the power of like networking and putting yourself out there and not being afraid. You know, I went by myself with with nothing. And these were people who are already in the industry who most of them, the PR industry is small in general, super small in, in Las Vegas. Everybody knows each other. So these are all people who knew each other, worked with each other. It was a, you know, it could be a pretty intimidating setting, but I had to do something. I had those student loan payments were creeping up on me. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and honestly, I think even at the time Vegas was like pretty clicky. I feel like everybody had their little clicks. And if you weren't in the click, it was hard to get in. Hard to break in. Yeah. Yeah. What advice would you give to someone in their early twenties that's looking to get into PR? And now in the digital age, we have the DMs and we have email and ways to kind of backdoor getting connections. Would you recommend still going in person and getting your name out there in person or is it okay to use technology? You know, I think it's okay. I think it's definitely, if you're a young professional trying to get into PR, I think that it's okay to use a technology, but I would just be really careful about that. I think it too, it depends on the person that you're contacting. You know, for example, generationally, there's so many people in the workforce right now and there's so many generations being represented, right? Like there's still boomers in the workforce. There's still millennials, elder millennials like myself and you you know, the Gen Xers and Gen Z now. So, you know, I think it just depends. Like if your potential employer is a boomer, say, you know, I don't think they're going to appreciate you sliding into their DMs for a job, right? They want you to take a more traditional professional route. Maybe LinkedIn, you know, that's a much more professional platform for job hunting and certainly networking online. So I would be careful about that. I think you just really need to know who your audience is, which really, I mean, in PR, just in general, you need to understand your audience. You need to understand the way that they want to receive messages and do it through whatever platform is going to make the most sense for them. Maybe that's in person. 
at an event or something, perhaps that's on through Instagram or Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever. Yeah. Know your audience. You know, you, what you don't want to do is just, you know, really embarrass yourself or, you know, make yourself look ridiculous. If you can't do PR for yourself, what's going to make them think that you can do PR for someone else? That is a perfect answer. That is a PR answer, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. (laughs) That makes total sense to me. I just... When I first graduated, my first job at the Four Seasons was sales, catering, and PR assistant. So it was all three. And I could basically decide if I wanted to go into room sales. No, thank you very much. So boring. Catering, which is the events, which obviously is what I chose ultimately, or PR. And I really loved PR, but in Houston, there are not many opportunities or there were not many opportunities at the time that were not already filled by someone way more senior than I. And I'm talking like at least 10 years on me, you know? So I kind of felt discouraged about that at the time, but looking back, I think I could have done PR too. I just, um, you have to really have the balls to do it. Like you just have to be sure of yourself. And I don't think I had that at the time. Especially when you're young in PR, you have to be really scrappy. And as you're kind of honing your skills and figuring it all out, you have to develop a tough skin because you are going to get told no nine times out of 10. You are going to deliver a pitch completely wrong and it's just going to fall short. You're going to have clients or a product or something that you're trying to get publicity promotion for that isn't great. You know, they think they're the greatest thing on the planet, but they might not be. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of times that I've been like, oh my God, like, what am I even going to do with this? And I really, I firmly believe I just have made my career on maybe being too honest, you know, like forming great relationships and then just being really honest with people. I have literally picked up the phone and said to journalists, friends, coworkers, colleagues, I know that I'm serving you a plate of shit and I'm asking you to spin it into gold. I need your help here. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, I know this isn't great, but like, can you throw me a bone? <laughs> See, and I didn't have that because when I was working for like the crappiest hotel on the planet that I knew I wouldn't even want to host my event at, I still had to sell it like it was gold. I mean, I still had to do that. So, but that helped me later on, you know, when I actually had a product that I loved and wanted to promote and wanted to sell that made it so much easier. But with you, at least you got to have some sort of control over the narrative. Well, that's why I always tell young people who want to get into PR to start at a PR agency because you get to work with such a range of clients that you'll figure out pretty quickly the ones that you like, what you're good at, kind of where your passions lie. I knew I wanted to be in hospitality. I knew I wanted to work with chefs and restaurants specifically. My mother was a chef. My brother's a chef. My parents had a restaurant growing up. So I knew I really wanted to be in that world. When I worked at a PR agency, I got to work on a number of different clients in Vegas, whether it was hotel, restaurants, shows, nonprofits, And I found out really quickly that I was, you know, that my gut was right, that I really, my passion really lied in food and beverage and hospitality. And that's where I wanted to be. That was my wheelhouse. Ultimately, that's why I moved on from that first agency that I worked at. It was because they just weren't attracting the kinds of clients that I wanted to work with. And I knew that, yeah, like I didn't want to have to call people and beg them to write a story about a client that I didn't feel passionately about. 
you know, I wanted to really believe in like the products and people that I was selling and trying to get publicity for it obviously makes your job a lot easier if you actually really believe in it instead of saying like, can you please write a story about, you know, their new brunch at this restaurant, but that brunch is shit. The food sucks. You know, like it's really hard to sell. And then your name is attached to that. Right. And so I just didn't want, I just didn't, I wanted to be taken seriously and I wanted to be a credible publicist and I wanted to have integrity and I wanted to be honest. And I didn't want to, you know, say like, this is going to be the best fried chicken you ever had when I knew that fried chicken sucked. (laughs) You go to like terribles and have better at their buffet or something. Right, exactly. RIP to terribles buffet. I think it's no longer open. (laughs) That also ages me quite, quite a bit. (laughs) Beyond, you know, the pitching and the parties and things that you get to do when you're young and in PR and old and in PR too, there certainly is a lot of like grunt work, so to speak. You know, there's a lot of like, well, it used to be before everything was so digital, you know, scanning the newspaper for like magazines, for like the clips of your clients, you know, and things. There were just so, so many reports and things that you had to put together. You know, you have to write the first draft of everything. Yeah, you know, you're the one with the clipboard at the front checking people off the list. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of that, you know, before you get to run the show or call the shots, I guess. Cool. I just, I mean, I'm asking all those questions. We've never talked about this and I just find it so intriguing. And I'm sure our younger listeners who really want to go into PR are going to be so fascinated. Yeah. It's not all celebrities and parties. It's a lot of standing outside of the party that you don't get to go to and you don't get to eat any of the free food that's going around and you don't get to have any of the drinks that are everybody's the open bar. You don't do any of that. Like you are literally standing outside or maybe sitting outside at the table, checking people in, giving wristbands and then passing out gift bags when they leave. (laughs) I mean, you know, I guess you can, you make, you build connections though along the way. And that's a positive thing. You meet so many people, which, you know, moving forward, going into your job at Win, was it someone that you had met along the way or did you just apply to Win and you just received the position? Just like, of course you did because you're perfect. Okay. Continue with the story. <laughs> so what I did when I transitioned from agency to Win, I was actually thinking about moving back home to Ohio. I had just gone through a really hard breakup between me and my college boyfriend. We'd been together for like six years also in Las Vegas, we broke up and I was just like, what am I even doing here? Like, I should just go home. You know, we lived together. So, you know, I was out a roommate, um, my best friend, you know, everything. And I was just like, I just felt really, you know, I was 24 at the time. And I just felt like sad and broken and homesick. And I just thought that like, I just really should just go home. We had another roommate, Carrie. Uh, you know, Carrie. So Carrie lived with me and my college boyfriend. And, you know, I had told her like, I'm going to put in my notice at work. I'm going to move back to Ohio. She was actively looking for another place to live. Like we were all going to move out of this townhouse that we lived in together. And then I saw the job post for a food and beverage and nightlife PR manager at Wynn Vegas. And perhaps I'm a little biased, but I think that most people know that Win is the best. It is the absolute best. And I knew that was a brand that I really wanted to be associated with. I wanted to be, you know, this goes back to like talking about like, you know, a shit product versus a great one, right? Like that is a great product. Everything in that building is just absolutely amazing. And I knew I was like, yes, food and beverage, nightlife. This is exactly my wheelhouse. 
I'm going to apply for this one job at the greatest resort ever. And if I get it, I'll stay. And if I don't, I'll go home. I applied. I got an interview. I did three interviews in three days and they offered me the job. And I was like, all right, I am meant to stay here right now. This is where I'm supposed to be. So I started working at Wynn in Las Vegas. And honestly, like I have said this before to other people, like it saved me. Like who knows where I would be today, what I would be doing if if I had gone back to Ohio and just kind of given up at that time. It just, I loved that job so much. I loved all the people that I worked with, the team, all of the chefs, every single thing about it was just incredible. And yeah, I mean, I learned a lot. I learned all about luxury on a level that like I personally never really had spent that much time even experiencing at that point. You know, my family didn't have like money. Like when we went on vacations and things, we didn't stay at the Four Seasons or anything, certainly didn't stay at the Wynn. I mean, I think when I was a kid and we went to Las Vegas, I think we stayed at the Tropicana. Nothing against the Tropicana. It's just not the Wynn. So, you know, I learned so much. And at that time, Steve Wynn was still involved. So you just really learned a lot about hospitality and five-star service and just really what it meant to work for a luxury brand that had a lot of equity and a lot of loyalty. And I loved every moment of working there. It was incredible. Now, you know my grandparents, right? Rest in peace to my grandparents. <laughs> my nana and pa, they, on the other hand, loved to stay at the best of the best hotels. They could afford that. They brought us as kids, even as kids, like when we were before we were teenagers, even we were going to Las Vegas to visit. And I don't know how I'm sure it was a travel agency or something. Who knows how they picked hotels back then? But my grandfather would always pick Steve Wynn properties. So at the beginning, it was Treasure Island. Then it was the Mirage. Then it was Bellagio. And, you know, and then slowly but surely it evolved. And so I remember walking in the room at now TI and it was Steve Wynn's voice, like, um, you know, playing on the commercial. And it was like, we've got the tigers, the white tigers at Mirage. And I was like, oh, that voice is so soothing. Who is that? Like, So whatever you have to say about Steve Wynn, to me, his name is synonymous with like the top of the top of what you could possibly get in Las Vegas, still to this day, in my opinion. And I'm not biased, even though you work for the company, I'm still not biased. I still to this day would stay at Winter Encore over anywhere else on the strip. So when I met you, you know, I was like, this girl's really representing something that I can relate with. And I think that's why you and I were tight so quick because we both really enjoyed the same experiences, particularly in dining. I remember one dinner that we had at formerly Bartolota. We had that dinner that with my parents and my sister and Jack, I think. And it was like, honestly, I think one of the best dinners to date that I've had. And it was basically free because they hooked you up because you were with us. And it was like the, literally the, I mean, the fish and the pasta and the antipasto, I just, from everything from A to Z to dessert, I think we rolled out of there. We could have been rolled out in wheelchairs. We'd eaten so much. And we did that every time we ate together, to be honest. But I think that's a lot of the reason why you and I clicked was we loved having those really cool experiences. I honestly, to date, when I think about some of the best meals I had in my life, like 
I would say in my top five, probably three of them were at Bartolota. The place was incredible. And yes, and a couple of them were with you or and also with your family. You know, I'll never forget that dinner that we had. Nana and Pop were there. And you're and she is just the sweetest. Oh my goodness. And honestly, apparently doesn't love everybody, but we just really took to each other. I love Nana. I mean, she was like, come to Houston. You're gonna stay at my house. <laughs> you're going to stay with me. <laughs> it's like, okay, let's do it. And then I loved them too. And then we had that one dinner where we sat outside by the pool with the silver balls in it. And remember they brought out every flavor of the gelato and sorbet. And we, and we were like trying to guess like, which was what were the flavors? I think we got most of them, right? I'm pretty sure we got like 13 out of 15. So it really surprised me. And I have to say mom and dad too, because I feel like they were just an integral part of your life when you're making decisions about your future at the time when you moved to Hakkasan group. So we were all like, oh my God, she's leaving when, what is she doing? Our hookup at the when is going away. We love it so much. And of course, I'm just joking. We all want you to be happy, but tell me why you decided to leave a job that you loved so much. And obviously, you know, financially could be a reason, but I know for you, it's like you have your heart has to be in it. So tell me what really drove you to make the move to Hakkasan. Career wise, that was one of the hardest decisions I've ever made. And the reason that I did it ultimately was I had been at Wynn for about three years. And as I said already, I loved it so much. I could have done that job every day until I retired. But then I would have done that job every day until I retired. I was at a manager level at that time. And I just felt like I was at a point where I wasn't learning anything new. And I really wanted to expand my skill set. I wanted to work for a different company to also get a different frame of reference about how somebody else does it. You know, at the time, Hakkasan Group was just beginning in the US, but also exploding in the US, right? So like, it was just all the hype was all about Hakkasan Group, this amazing nightclub that they were building. They had this incredible Michelin star restaurant that they were bringing, the amount of money and backing that the company had, the exponential growth it was going to see. So when I got an opportunity to go there at a director level, you know, it helped me to move up. It helped me for the first time to be able to manage a team also a lot of outside agencies that I would manage. So it just expanded my skill set, not only as a PR professional, but just as a leader as well. That was something that I was kind of missing. There was, as much as I loved my job at Wynn, my boss at the time, she had an equally great job at Wynn that she loved just as much. I mean, in fact, she's still in that same position because she loved me so much. Like, and I knew she's never going to leave. Why would she leave? Incredible. I wouldn't leave if I were her, you know, there was no place for me to go. So it was just, I had to continue doing that job or go someplace else to get different experience so that I could, you know, continue to grow in my career. That totally makes sense. It was so hard. I cried every day for like two I was so sad. Like every day that I left Hakkasan Group, which nothing against them or that experience, I was like, I just can't believe that I'm not at Win. And it was just so new and everything was different. And I felt out of my comfort zone. And I did. I, I would cry every I cried every day for two weeks. I was like, I just can't believe it. What have I done? You know? Sometimes you think about that. You look back and you're like, okay, I was uncomfortable because I was growing. Yeah, exactly. 
And that's how I feel right now with the whole podcasting. Some days I'm so freaking uncomfortable and so stressed. And I'm like, I'm uncomfortable because I'm growing. Okay. So Hakkasan, can we talk about maybe some celeb encounters at Hakkasan? Were there any fun ones? Oh gosh. I have had so many celeb encounters. I would say not quite as many at Hakkasan though. While there were a ton of celebrities around and involved, because see, because I was at a director level, I didn't have to go to the nightclub every week. That's true. You know, when I was younger, I did have to go to the nightclub every week and work. That sounds fun. It sounds fun. But when you work in the office all day from like nine to six or whatever, go home, eat, change, go to the club. You're there at like 10 o'clock PM. You stay until three or four o'clock in the morning and then, you know, working the whole time. So it's not like you're going to the club, like you are dressed for the club. So you're uncomfortable. You're sober, completely sober. You're starving. You're exhausted and getting yelled at by, (laughs) you know, rude, drunk people and, you know, nightclub guys. And yeah, like it sounds fun, but it's not all that glamorous. It's exhausting. The NPR, they said, it'll be fun. They said, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah. I mean, I think all of my like war stories all come from doing like nightlife PR. Okay. When was little John? I, I cannot remember for the life of me when that was. That was when I worked at Win. Okay. That was a fun story. I feel like you should tell the story. Okay. So the LVCVA, which is the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority, threw a huge Las Vegas themed party. They do this around the world for various like feeder markets for Las Vegas. And they did one in Toronto. And so all of the major resort companies were sending things to the party. So it was like Cirque du Soleil sent out some performers who were going to perform at the party. I want to say like the Cosmopolitan had like had an amazing mixologist um, who they sent out to the party to like make cocktails. Uh, some, a couple chefs came out to do the food at the party. The party was in a nightclub setting. And so they of course needed a DJ for the party. So uh, when at that time it even continues to have an amazing roster of DJ and artist talent um, at all of their venues. Lil John was one of ours at the time. And so he was there to represent Wynn, and I was there to represent Wynn at this party. And I spent my entire day in Toronto uh, going around to do various radio, television interviews with Lil John, who is amazing. The nicest man. I mean, he is so incredibly smart. His brain is just like a marketing genius. You know, he's so smart. He's just like... He's John Smith, and then he turns it on to be Lil John, you know, with the voice and everything like that. It was just, it was incredible to watch him be John Smith, the businessman, and then morph into Lil John personality when he would get on the radio or on TV, you know, doing the, yeah, and, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, that's like the persona, Lil John. That's not like who he is, but he's incredible. Loved him. So we go to the party hanging out with Lil John all day. I'm feeling very cool. We go to the party. 
after the party is the after party. <laughs> to this day, I cannot drink tequila. I cannot smell tequila. Thank you, Lil John. Oh my God. Tequila, 1942 was just like raining from the sky. I can't even look at it without feeling gaggy because I had so much tequila that night. We stayed out way too late, um, had the best time and went back to the hotel, took a little cat nap, and then took an international flight from Toronto back to Las Vegas, smelling like, tasting like tequila. <laughs> it was, you could tell all the people like who were there from Vegas for the Vegas party that were going to Vegas, going back home. We were the ones who like looked like we were dying. We were like the walking dead on the plane. And then like everybody else was like getting pumped to go to Vegas to party, right? So people are like drinking on the plane. Everybody's like, woo, Vegas. And we're like, oh my God, kill me. <laughs> You're like, yeah, Vegas. Yeah, yay. Yeah, it was, <laughs> we were looking pretty rough for the next day, but it was incredible. But you guys kind of stayed in touch for a little bit, right? Yeah, like he, mm-hmm. yeah, you guys now. are friendly. Even now? Even now, every now and again, like we'll, you know, DM or whatever. Oh my um, God. he's the best he's just like the greatest yeah we've gone to dinner together he's just like the nicest guy he always has like 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 i said his marketing brain is just crazy like he was like what do you think of this idea he had like this crazy idea that he wanted to do we were at some like hole in the wall cuban restaurant that he likes in las vegas and he was telling me he's like yeah over there they have a chapel and in the back they have like a room for parties and i'm thinking like maybe i'll get ordained and i can marry people i'll marry them in the chapel and then i'll dj their reception back here Is that the one of like the Hampton Inn or something? The, it's like, the Hojo. Our, yeah, the Hojo. That's <laughs> I was like, I know it starts with an H. What is it? <laughs> I've been there. It's actually really good. The restaurant's great. It was so good. Yeah, it was really great. I've never been there, but he was like, this is my favorite restaurant in Las Vegas. Low like, key right, cool. so fire. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> cool. Well, that is awesome. I actually didn't know that you had, I mean, it makes sense. You didn't have any interactions when you were at Hakusan because you were at a higher level, but you know, I thought for some reason that's when you would have met the most, like been around the most celebs, but I guess you just had your little minions do that it for was you. During my agency days, when we opened a nightclub and also Sugar Factory, so Sugar Factory, especially at the time, you know, this is like 2010. So this is like before the celebrity DJ. This is like when a time in Las Vegas, when every weekend was either a reality star or somebody coming to like make a celebrity appearance. This was the celebrity appearance time when people like Paris Hilton were getting paid crazy amounts of money to show up at the club. That was the time that I spent a lot of time around celebrities and actually had to like interact and deal with them. And then, yeah, at at Hakkasan, well, and the thing about Hakkasan is I probably could have had a lot more interactions, but at that point I chose not to. I was like, I'm good. Like I'm tired. You're over it. Yeah. 23, you're cute. You go. Like I'm, no, <laughs> I'm going to go home and watch some TV. I'm going to go home. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna go home to my cat. Yeah. Excuse me. Mama's tired. <laughs> yeah. Makes sense to me. So I had actually, I mean, in reading your bio, I was like, you know, every time it went to a new paragraph, I was like, oh my God. Yeah. And then she went to Hawkson. Oh yeah. And then she went to Wolfgang Puck. And I obviously know that you worked for these places, but it got me excited because I was like, wow, my friend has had a really fucking cool career. Like you really, I'm going to try not to cry. I've had a very emo day. So you really have had such a kick-ass career. And the fact that you literally did this off your own back and nobody else's that you built this from the ground up is truly so fucking inspiring to me. 
that's why I'm spending so much time talking about your work. And I hope you don't mind. I just think that it's going to be like a girl in her early twenties is going to hear this podcast and they're going to be like, you know what? I can do this too. And I think it's going to be because of your journey. So I'm so excited to share this. So after Hakkasan, tell me what happened between there and Wolfgang Puck. Cause I think that they found you, right? I'm pretty sure that they found you if I remember correctly. Yes. So actually it was a woman who I was friendly with, who was an editor at a publication in Las Vegas. Um, she said to me while I was at Hakkasan, she like sends me a message and she's like, Hey, the director of communications for Wolfgang Puck is, is, is leaving. Like you have to apply for this job. And, you know, it's just so funny because when I left Ohio and I would explain to people what it was that I was trying to do or what I wanted to do, or when I would go back to Ohio early in my career and try to explain to people there what I was doing, you know, I would, I would say, you know, and who knows, like maybe one day I can, I'll be, you know, running the PR for somebody like Wolfgang Puck. I used to use him as an example of like, that is the ultimate goal. Like that is the pinnacle for me. And so when she reached out to me and the woman who had been in the, who I'm friendly with, the woman who had been in that role prior had been there for years. And I thought there's no way she'll ever leave that. Why would she, you know, this is amazing. Talk about divine timing in your career. Yeah. I mean, it just all just kind of worked out and I was really lucky again to just be in the right place at the right time. And, um, so I was like, I have to go for this. I absolutely have to at least try. Like this in my mind was like, this was why I came to Vegas was to have a job like this. And now it's right here in front of me. So I applied for it and I reached out to the woman who was leaving and I'm like, hey, I'm super interested in this. Can you put in a good word for me, you know, or, or interview me or something? And she was like, a hundred percent, absolutely, please come. I interviewed with her and a couple of the managing partners. And again, I think I did like three interviews in three days and they offered me the position. You know, I, it was, yeah, it was like a dream come true. That felt like that was my dream job. That was why I moved to Las Vegas. And that, like, I don't know if all those years before by saying that I kind of put it into the universe and sort of manifested it, but you know, I did my best to work my way. Every move that I've made in my career has always been for a reason. And first, you know, it's strategic so that I could get to the next thing. You know, I knew I had to leave when to get and have a director level job at a place like a Hakkasan so that I could one day run a PR for a huge operation like Wolfgang Puck. You know, there was just no way I could jump from what I was doing at Win to a Wolf, the kind of job that I did, you know, at Wolfgang. There was just no way that I could have done that had I not taken, you know, a role at a group like Hakkasan to really, you know, diversify my skill set, to expand upon my leadership abilities, manage a team, manage a lot of outside agencies, deal with partners that were all over the world. Um, if I hadn't had that experience, I never would have gotten a job with Wolfgang Puck, which was amazing. Wow. Okay. That's incredible. So and with Wolfgang Puck, so within that, right? So it was, okay, how many was it? It was, it's $600 million company. Okay, wild. 27 fine dining restaurants, 100 franchise units. And then they had packaged food, coffee, wine, homeware stuff. And you were basically at the top of marketing for all of that. Is that correct? <laughs> That's a lot of stuff. I'm sure when you get down to housewares, you're just like, this is a lot. It's a lot of stuff. Yeah. I mean, and also things I'd never dealt with before. I'd never dealt with franchised restaurants before. That must be a whole different ballgame. Whole different ballgame. 
whole different ballgame. Um, I'd never dealt with a celebrity personality like Wolfgang Puck. Whole different ballgame than a, a, just an, your average chef, right? This is like the celebrity chef. So yeah, completely different ballgame. Packaged foods, coffees, soup. I'd never done any of that before. So it was another opportunity for me to, you know, not only be in my dream role, but to really diversify my skill set and learn a lot more about, you know, you understand the basics of how to do PR and then you learn all of these new worlds. And it was, it was awesome. I learned a ton and I learned a ton really quickly because I had to. (laughs) So let's talk about the Oscars. Let's talk about the Oscars. Oh my God. You want to talk about celebrities. My God, that is, I mean, I'll never go to another event more star-studded than that. There is, I don't know that there is an event more star-studded than that. It was everywhere you turn, there was a celebrity and it was just like all the good ones. So the times that I went to the Oscars, Wolfgang caters the governor's ball, which is like the official, it's like the after party immediately following the Oscars. And, you know, what people don't know about the Oscars is you can't drink or eat anything in the theater, right? So the show is really long during the breaks when it's on commercial, everybody basically like rushes out to the lobby, pounds a drink and then runs back in, right? So by the time the show is over, they are hungry and they're a little bit drunk. And so they go immediately to the governor's ball where Wolfgang has an incredible spread. He's been doing this now for like over 25 years. He's been catering this event. And, you know, they go, they eat before they move on to the Vanity Fair party or whatever other parties they're going to. It's also the only place that you can get your Oscar engraved. So when you win an Oscar, it's blank. It doesn't say anything on it. But if you want it to have like your name and like what you want on it, there's the like official engraving station is at the governor's ball. Yeah. No idea about that. So I'm like, everybody who wins is coming here. So these are all the big names. One year in particular, it was the year that Leonardo DiCaprio won for The Revenant. I think is what the movie was called, Revenant. The one where he attacks the bear, whatever he does with the bear. I've actually never seen it. I haven't either, but I just remember your Instagram stories. (laughs) So I'm like, oh my God. Leonardo DiCaprio is going to be here. He is coming. He's going to be here. And it's so funny because you're talking about my celebrity encounters at Hakkasan. I swear to God, I felt like every time that I would actually go to the club to work something, I felt like the very next day I'd be in the office and they'd be like, oh, Leo came right after you left. And I'm like, no, did he? But did he? You know, I never saw him. So what do you mean he was there? You know, I felt like I heard that all of the time. Even when I worked at Win Las Vegas, they'd be like, Leo was there. And I'm like, where was he? I was there. Where was Leo? Like, I was, it got to the point where I'm like, Leonardo DiCaprio is not even real. He's not <laughs> even like, he's not a real guy. Like, he's just not. So I'm like, I am going to post up by this engraving station. I am not moving from this engraving station until I get eyes on Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> I stood there and I waited very patiently. You're a unicorn. Holding on to this, you know, one glass of champagne. Like, I'm not leaving. I'm staying right here. And waiting and waiting and waiting until finally, be still my heart. There he was, beautiful, as you can imagine. Shows up, has to write his name. They write their name down in a book, like exactly how it's spelled and like what category they won. And then the person takes it and they engrave it, shine up the Oscar. 
And I took a photo of him and I swear he's making eye contact with me in it. I think he's got kind of like a glowy like aura around him. And uh, yeah, it was, it was like seeing a unicorn in real life. It was as glorious as one might expect. <laughs> oh my God. That's amazing. <laughs> I remember just being so excited for you. I was like, oh my God, it's playing Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh my, right. Exactly. Yeah. That's how I felt too. And I was like, I am not leaving. And then as soon as he walked away, I was like, I put my glass down. I'm like, I'm going back up to the room. I'll watch the highlights on TV. I'm going to order some room service and go to bed. My work here is done. I've seen Leonardo. I got the photo. He looked right at me. Honestly, your life's work was done at that point. It really was. was, Yeah. Call it a day. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me like a little bit about your responsibilities. Like when event, a huge event, like the governor's ball is going on. What are your specific responsibilities during an event like that? Well, so Wolfgang has three different parts of his company. He has the fine dining part. He has the part that's called worldwide, which is all of the franchise units, basically anything that licenses his name. So any of the franchise units, cookware, the, all the packaged foods, coffee, soup, all of those things, that all are, is through worldwide. And then he has the catering arm. So the catering arm is actually the company that handles the governor's ball. So I actually did not have a role. I was just there for fun and to be helpful, to be helpful if they needed my help. And honestly, they didn't need my help. So I strolled around that place, like, like trying to not look like a total fangirl, but I'm like, also like in my phone texting, I was married. I was texting my husband at the time. And I'm like, oh, oh my God, every turn. I'm like, oh my God, it's so-and-so. Oh my God, it's so-and-so. You know, just like trying to like be cool on the outside, but inside I was just like, holy shit. <laughs> like I have never seen so many famous people in one place, all the big names. It was just, it was wild. It was wild. That's so cool. So were there events though, where you had to be like Wolfgang's right hand? I mean, were there events like that? Okay. I I think I thought there were. Yeah, definitely. We, you know, would throw parties. Well, one that comes to mind uh, was before the Mayweather Pacquiao fight, we threw a big HBO party, HBO and Showtime had a party at one of his restaurants. And so that one was another one that was like superstar studded. Wolfgang came out for the fight but he wanted to say hello to all the celebrities that were there. Well, the restaurant is packed. So I've done like a lap to like figure out who's there and where they are. So I can take Wolfgang to meet them, you know? So just things like that. Wolfgang is so great though. He really doesn't need like a whole lot of handholding or handling. He's been doing this for so long. I mean, if I could, if I had a dollar for every time Wolfgang told me I've been doing this for longer than you were been alive, you know, I could retire. He knows what he's doing. He's so great. He works the room. You know, he's been doing, again, he's been doing like Good Morning America since before I was alive. So, you know, when I went there, he's showing me around the studio. You know, he's showing me what the drill is. He's like, here's the bathroom. Like, (laughs) ladies' room is down the corner, around the way if you need. You know, he is so low maintenance. It's amazing. But yeah, you know, you just try to be as helpful as his publicist as you possibly can and, you know, kind of run interference if you know that something weird is coming, or maybe there's somebody that Wolfgang gets along with just about everybody, but you know, there's some people that you want to kind of block. Of course. Absolutely. And maybe because he doesn't like them, but maybe because they're nuts, you know, you just never know. There's a lot of people like that. So coming full circle, someone comes a knocking on your door. (laughs) It was 2019, right? Okay. So who comes a knocking? My Achilles. (laughs) Your Achilles. So when comes knocking on your door, but, but not in Las Vegas, right? Not in Las Vegas. That's right. Yep. So tell us what happened. So 
I had been with Wolfgang for four years at the time, and I was starting to feel like I wasn't growing anymore. And so I was starting to kind of think like, what's my next move going to be? Maybe I'll branch off on my own and just kind of, you know, maybe I'll just get a couple clients and do some consulting and just kind of figure out like what I really want. I was also, and I'm sure we'll get into this once we get beyond career, was super unhappy in my personal life. So I was think I was just like really looking for something, right? At the time, I didn't realize that I was probably like projecting, you know, a little bit. Like I really unhappy in my personal life. And so I felt like I needed to make some kind of change. Um, so I was doing that in a work setting. So I was like, I don't know, you know, maybe I'll just take some time kind of for myself. I'll do some consulting, whatever. So when resorts comes calling, my old boss calls me and it's like, Hey, we're opening a property in Boston. Do you want to go out to help with the opening? Our PR director there quit. And I was like, I will be on the next flight. I absolutely, when calling, I, the ultimate brand enthusiast, say, yes, absolutely, I will. And it's really funny because right before I left Win in Las Vegas to go to Hakkasan Group, I had spoken to my direct supervisor, my boss at the time, and I said, you know, I just, I don't really see, like, what's my path here? Like, there's no room for me to grow. And she said, you're absolutely right. There's not your best bet would be to wait until Boston opens. Seven years later, Boston was opening and they gave me a call and asked me if I wanted to come do it. And I thought, wow, isn't that weird? I came out here initially to help open and I walked through the construction zone. It was probably 90% done once I got here. And I walked through the building and I was just like, oh my God, this place is spectacular all this could be mine. <laughs> and yeah, like I said, you know, I was going through some things personally and I thought this was a great opportunity for me to go back to work for a company that I loved and to, again, really grow myself, to open this property in a completely different market. I'd been living in Las Vegas for 11 years at the time. I had never worked professionally outside, you know, of Las Vegas so to move to a new market where gaming, because obviously Wynn has a casino, gaming was so new to Massachusetts. It was like a new market with a new industry, brand new property, just everything about it. I thought is like, even if this is really hard, it's going to just really grow me professionally. And I've been here now for over two years and I love it. And it's been everything that I hoped it would be. And, you know, I, like, it's funny that, like I said, when I went to win Las Vegas, I was going through a challenging time personally, and it really kind of saved me. And I feel the, honestly, the exact same way about it this time around. I just feel like a new woman, you know, I was going through a very rough personal time and I came out here and it's just, I love it. Oh, I love that. So let's not forget to say this is a $2.6 million, billion, not million, billion dollar luxury resort. It's a lot of responsibility for you. So it's also the largest private single phase development in the history of the Commonwealth. That's incredible. And as you know, Massachusetts, this is where the Mayflower landed. So it's a long history. It's very... <laughs> It's rather long. <laughs> it goes past boomers, like not past boomer generation. So 
you are basically the company spokesperson for everything. So do you feel like, are there ever days where no matter what the experiences you have behind you, you're just like, this is a lot of freaking responsibility. Yeah. Every day, every day. And you know, we're a publicly traded company as well. Like, you know, I can say something wrong and then our stocks could tank like that, you know, that's crazy. Like, I, ah, I don't want that. You know, you know, I have to be super careful. And I, you know, like even in doing this podcast with you, I was like, Ooh, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I should do this because, you know, but yeah, like I feel a great deal of responsibility to make sure that the company is protected. The brand is protected, that we're really positioned in the way that we want to be and that we should be in the marketplace. You know, I know enough to know what I don't know. And I'm so lucky that the people that I work with are so amazing and like so great at what they do. Our executive team is just, I mean, best in class. I, you know, I learn so much from them every day. You know, they help me to be better. I don't take any, I could never say that like, it's all on me. It's not, it's a 100% a team effort and they are so supportive and so great. And even if, if I come up with something, I think, oh, I think this is the best thing to say, or this is the right way to position it. And, you know, I don't have all the years of collective experience the way that they do or their various backgrounds. So like, I'm always learning from them and it just helps to make me better as well. So like I said, every move I've ever made in my career has always been to advance myself, not necessarily financially or even by title, but always as like professional growth and development. And so that continues here as well. And I'm just incredibly blessed, really. Is the market like, or maybe not the market, I suppose, but the atmosphere, the atmosphere in the Encore, is it similar to Las Vegas? I know it looks like it, but do you have the same vibe when you're in the Encore in Vegas versus Boston? I've never been to Boston. So you have yeah, to tell me. Absolutely. No, it's incredible. I mean, it is, it, it feels like as soon as you walk in, that's what people say. They're like, oh my God, I feel like I'm in Vegas. Which is amazing, you know, but it was challenging when we first got here. We were bringing, like I said, a new industry to a new market and New Englanders are tough. You know, they, they like what they like and they know what they know. And we were this Las Vegas company coming in. And I think a lot of people kind of felt like we were forcing Las Vegas onto them. And so it wasn't necessarily really well-received. We had a very tough opening period. Once we started kind of getting our bearings and really like figuring out the market and how we fit into it, COVID happened. So then we we go down, you know, we were closed for five months. And, but during that time, it, you know, like I said, our team is so incredible and so smart and scrappy and just the amount of change and pivoting that we had to do, it just, it, you know, luck, I say, I believe that the pandemic is one of the, is like the worst, best thing that could have happened to us because it really gave us an opportunity to reset, refocus, and like really figure out like who we were and how we fit into this market and how that was going to work for us when we reopened. And yeah, I mean, we have, we're at pre-pandemic business levels. I mean, we are so busy. Like things are just going really, really great for the company. Yeah. It's been a roller coaster of a journey for sure, but it's been, yeah, I've learned so much. And it, yeah, going back to the pandemic being like the worst, best thing. Like I said, it, the way that it gave us an opportunity to like it gave us an opportunity to fine tune some things um, with the ability to kind of hit pause and do that, as opposed to like being open 24 seven, having to do the day-to-day operation and also figure all of that out. We were able to kind of like pause, take a step back, assess everything, and then like reopen. I don't know how do I want to say it. Not like reopening the venues, but like we were just able to like 
get our shit together kind of, you know, yeah, yeah. just like figured it out. No, that makes total sense to me. I can relate in a small scale way because I did get laid off from my job in hospitality and it gave me like the unemployment phase of things gave me the opportunity to really hone in on like what exactly I wanted to do without having to be at work, you know, and like really channel my energy into like not scattered, like, oh, I need to do this for work. I need to be at work at 9 a.m., blah, blah, blah. It was like all channeled into one direction, which is ended up being a blessing too. So speaking of blessings, I was going to say, I want to talk to you a little bit about your personal life. You did bring up earlier that you were going through a tough time. Obviously, I know all about it because I was a bridesmaid in your, in your wedding, which was beautiful. And it was a great party. It's what I say about my wedding as well. We say it was a great party. It was a great party. <laughs> but recently you did get divorced, correct? Fully divorced now. Okay. And you were married for how many years? Five. Five, five. Gosh, it seems like longer. I don't know why. Now tell us a little bit about, you know, women in, you know, our age, like mid thirties, they're starting unfortunately now and with kids and without to get, you know, like their marriages are starting to fail. Some of them, unfortunately. So what would you say to a woman who is kind of teetering on the brink of like, I don't know if I should stay or not. And obviously we don't know their situations, but what are some questions that they can ask themselves to make sure that they're in the, in it for the right reasons for them personally? That's a great question. I think a really good question to ask yourself is, am I happy? Right. Okay. That sounds simple enough, but that's a tough question to really dig in. You can easily say, sure, I'm happy, you know, but like, okay, sure, you're happy, but are you as happy as you could be, you know? And then if the answer to that is yes, I'm as happy as I could be, then great. But if the answer to that is, well, I could be happier, you know, think about the things that would make you happier. Like, what is that? You know, what does that look like? Is it that you could be happier in your marriage specifically, right? So how could I be happier? I could be happier if my husband did X, Y, or Z, you know, and then look at those things. Like, is he capable of doing them? Have you spoken to him about them? You know, is that a change that could actually happen so that you could achieve that ultimate happiness with this person? Sometimes the answer is yes. And sometimes the answer is no. You know, if you marriages are a two-way street and you both, you know, they say that it's like 50-50, but I really don't think it is. I think it's like 100-100, really. Like it's not 50-50, it's 100-100 and you both have to be willing to give 100%. And if you are have asked yourself if I'm happy and the answer to that is no, or I'm not as happy as I could be, and then you get serious with yourself and really dive into what are the things that would make you happy or the things that you feel like you're lacking, you know, you have to be willing to have the uncomfortable conversation with your partner about those things and see if they're willing to not meet you halfway, but come 100% to make you that happy. And either they will be or they won't be. And then you'll have to make the decision from there. So do you feel like you should have asked yourself the same question a couple of years ago when you and your ex were having the issues that you were having? I will say that I, like I think many people, stayed in my relationship, in my marriage, way past its expiration date. I was unhappy for a long time. I knew I was unhappy for a long time. 
I was well aware of the things that I thought would make me happier or that I knew would make me happier. But I was so in love with my husband that even though he wasn't fulfilling me in many ways, I made excuses. I said, you know, well, he doesn't do this because X, Y, Z, you know, whatever. And I made a lot of excuses for him. Looking back, the red flags were all there. He was he's been who he is ever since I started dating him. But I was just so in love with him that I believed that I hate to say it, but like in some ways I believed that like he would change or that I could change him or that our relationship, our marriage, my support and love would help him to be different, that he would want to be different because he would want to come 100% to make me happy. And that just wasn't the case. Because your ex-husband's potential is astronomical. It truly is. Like if you look at him on surface level, you're like, this has the potential to be like an astronomically cool husband, right? But when you get down to it, we fall in love with potential a lot of the times, you know, and women like you and I, who are really strong willed, we tend to think that we can sway them in a better direction. And I'm even guilty of it recently. I mean, even my recent relation, the most recent relationship that I have had, you know, I found myself making excuses and saying, it'll be better in a couple of months. It'll change. No, no, ma'am. That is a 37 year old male who knows exactly what he is doing. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. You're changing him. There's a reason they say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. You cannot. <laughs> I know. It's just wild to me that, like, I allowed the behavior, but I know it in my head. When you fell in love with your ex husband, I saw it right away. I was like, she's gone. Goodbye. I mean, I remember meeting him for the first time when we were at Wynn, and he came up to you and literally just like took you by the hand and took you away. And I was like, there she goes. <laughs> you were just gone. And I think that at that point in time, even before you guys got married, there were certain things that you were telling me that I was like, that's a red flag. That's a red flag. That's a red flag. <laughs> but he was really dreamy and like really handsome and had a really cool job. And so you just, we kind of, all of us were like, no, oh, it's fine. It'll be good. You know, it'll be cool. Like on the day of my wedding. And I don't think this is, was the same for you, but on the day of my wedding, I was in the shower on the morning before or of, and I thought to myself, well, I can always divorce. Like that was a thought that I literally had. Why? Did I get married that day? Oh, because we already spent the money and all the people were already coming and all of our family was there from Italy and my parents would be embarrassed. And now like I told my mom that and she's like, you should have told me. And I'm like, mom, I was 23. Like I, I thought that that man was the only man that was ever going to love me anyway. Like I just, you know, I was like, this is my one chance. So, and I had already, you know, one by getting him back from this, the other girl that he was with in the breakup period, you know, I was like, Oh, I won this battle. Like I can't let it go. I can't let go of the rope. So we just stay for like weird reasons. So I totally relate on that level, but I think for you, it was probably even more tough because, you know, you had gone through the passing of your father, you'd gone through the passing of your beloved cat as well with this person. Sorry, Gato is very important as well in the story. Okay. <laughs> and I miss your father so much. And I know that 
He's so proud of you, by the way, of just kicking ass. I always think about your first dance at your wedding and he got to experience that with you. And that was just something so cool that I'll never forget. Talking about my dad, that kept me in the relationship actually for longer than it probably should because it becomes irrational. You start thinking of like all of these things that like, how could I ever get married again? Yep. I was going to ask you, you know, like I wouldn't have my dad to walk me down the aisle. How could I marry somebody that my father would never meet? I know. I was going to ask you if that was a factor. Yeah, it was. I just thought like, you know, how could I do this and not have him there? You know, when we've already done this and he was there. So I need to try to make this work. So that was one of the factors. And then, you know, there was a good chunk of time where I felt very responsible for my ex and that like, I had to take care of him for all of the wonderful things that we saw about him, you know, he had a lot of other issues and, you know, some demons. And I felt very responsible for having to make all of that okay for him. And, you know, it just took me a long time to realize that like, I'm never going to make it okay for him. He needs to make it okay for him. And if he's not willing to make it okay for him, there's nothing that I can do about that. I just need to decide whether or not I'm willing to accept that for my life forever. And I wasn't, and I just wasn't, you know, it just, I tried very hard for a very long time. I never wanted to walk away thinking that like, I, did I try hard enough? I have never once thought that after I made the decision, I have not once thought, did I do everything that I could have to save our relationship? I know that I did. I know that I put in way, way more than I ever got and that I was never, he was, it was, you can only carry 90%, not even 90%. I would say, I would say 95%, at least 98%. You can only carry 98% of something for so long before you're just exhausted and empty. That makes sense. And of course, you know, over the years, you know, I was, I always wanted to approach you, but I just felt it wasn't my place to just be like, Hey, how are you? I mean, of course, how are you doing? But you really want to ask the question, are you happy? Because that's a hard question to ask a long distance friend who you don't see a lot. You know, I feel like that's invasive. That's like asking you, Hey, when are you getting pregnant? Like that's such an invasive, weird question to ask, I think. Um, And I'm sure you got asked that a lot. I'm sure people did ask you that. No, no, no. And I honestly think it's for that reason, because it is invasive, right? And that's why I said earlier, like when you have to ask yourself if you're happy, like you have to be really willing. That sounds like an easy question to ask, but if you want to be honest with yourself about the situation, it's an invasive question, even when you are questioning yourself and you have to be really willing to dig in. And most people don't want to admit that they're not happy. And so even if you're asked, I would be, if you had asked or any of my friends had asked, I'd be like, I'm fine. I'm great. Everything's cool. What are you talking about? You know, like nobody wants to say, no, I'm fucking miserable. And I have been for a really long time. Thanks for asking. You know, like you want to dive into the shit that I've been carrying? Like, let's unpack it. <laughs> you I know, got, I got the bag. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants to actually hear that as the response either. So yeah, I mean, I didn't really get asked by people if I was happy, but I was, I've been told a lot by people since then how much happier I seem to be. And I've had some people say, well, I knew you couldn't have been happy. Like, well, no, I was asking, were people asking you about the pregnancy thing? Like, were they asking you wh- why you guys weren't having kids? Like, is that a question you got a lot? Yeah, people would ask about like having kids, but like, I've never really been big on having children. 
I've never felt like I needed to be a mom. You know, some people, they really, really want to be a mother. They really want to carry a baby, you know, or they really want to be pregnant. I experienced that. I think that's wonderful. I think that's beautiful if that's the path that you want. I personally don't. I feel fine if I never have children. Like I feel fulfilled by life in many other ways that I don't think that I need to have a child. In fact, when I think about having a child, all I think about is that, no, that I, that it would take away, you know, obviously it doesn't, you don't meet people, you know, that's the thing. It's like, you never hear from people like worst thing I ever did was have a kid. Like nobody says that, you know, they're always like, it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. It's brought me so much joy. I loved in ways I didn't know that I could. And I think that's amazing. Will there be a day that I some maybe regret not having a child perhaps, but you know, I'm 35 now. I feel like the window is kind of closed. You know, I think that's like behind me. If I believe that if I were meant to have a child with my ex-husband, I would have, but we weren't ultimately meant to be together. So I thank God every day that we didn't. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, if you talk to my sister, um, she's about two days, three days from her C-section for my second nephew. And, you know, she tells it like it is. She's not one of those like Oh, pregnancy is so wonderful. She's like, get this fucking watermelon off of my belly. It is so annoying. I feel like literally I'm going to pop. She's miserable. I love that when people are super honest about it. They're like, I'm glowing. I hate that. That's like, no, you're not. You're fat and uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. You're hot. Oh, swollen. Like, can't be great. I mean, actually, I was in Chicago for a friend's birthday and his sister-in-law had twins and she was talking to us. And we were like, oh my God, because we were like, your body's amazing. Like, good for you, girl. She's like, yeah, well, you know, she's talking about her pregnancy. And we were like, yeah, how was that? She's like, I don't recommend it. I really don't. It's not That's exactly what Jackie says. She's like, I love my girls more than anything. Glad to have them. But pregnancy, not the greatest. <laughs> Well, you have your two beautiful nieces. You, they're amazing. I love them so much. I, how are they doing? They're so good. They moved back to Ohio. They're doing so great. Yeah, I was there recently hanging out with them. We did a lot of gymnastics. One of them plays softball. The other one's in t-ball. So we did a lot of throwing, you know, a lot of playing catch. Yes. How cool. They would like want me to come outside and like show me all the stuff that they could do, right? They're doing cartwheels and round offs and back bends and all these things. And then they'd be like, now your turn, you do something. And I'm like, what do you want me to do? They're like, anything. What can you do? Do all the things that you can do. (laughs) I am old. I cannot do the things. Yeah. I don't bend that (laughs) way. I do not bend that way anymore. Yeah. I feel the same way as you do. I think that, you know, I've never felt that pull of motherhood. And I feel so fulfilled with my nephew. I have another one coming. So I just feel like that it, watching my sister and her husband do all of the work that they do for just the one. And now all the work they're doing for two, I'm just like, this is a lot. And they just moved by the way, they just moved into a new house. When my sister nine months pregnant, I'm like, you're insane. Absolutely insane. But their new house is is amazing. It's just, oh, by the way, it's got like a built-in movie theater. You you need to come down. You need to visit. It's got like a movie theater. We don't have to go to the movies anymore. We could just like sit in our little recliners. There's like a microwave in there. You could like throw popcorn in. Like it's really awesome. It's real fancy. Yeah, I know, right? Super nice. I know. People would ask me, going back to your question, when people would ask me about like, when are you guys having kids? I used to make the joke, which is funny because I feel like it's very revealing now. And even then it was, but I'm very self-deprecating as you know. So like, you know, I just kind of like make a joke about it, but people would say, when are you guys going to have kids? And I would say, 
have you met my husband? Like, <laughs> I clearly already have a child. I do not need another one. And like, I even then I felt like I was taking care of somebody like as a child, not like as a partner. And I'm like, you know, that sounds like having a kid sounds like a lot of work for me. Yeah, that's a lot. Y'all did try therapy. I mean, well, I did therapy. I did therapy alone. He didn't want to do it. Okay. I thought that he had tried initially. He has a therapist. So he had his own, but he was not very open to doing couples therapy. Okay. So, and you tried, I actually had a guest on my last podcast and we were talking about ways to try to get your significant other to go to therapy. And I was trying to tell her about there's certain mindsets. Like for example, the Italian mindset is if you go to therapy, you're crazy or you're not a man or, and there, you know, there's like some similarities perhaps in ex-husband's background that could have been, you know, like he's not as manly if he goes to therapy. That's not what tough men do. Right. Honestly, for him, he would say that it was, he would be the first to admit that he has a lot of issues and he really struggles to, because they're so layered and they go back quite a while. I mean, they all, honestly, every, it all stems from his father. It all stems from his dad. And this all goes back for his entire life. So his issues are so long and layered. And then you, you know, add in the military experience and when he was in the Peace Corps, you know, just all his whole life. He really struggled to like open up to somebody and feel like they understood him fully. So he felt like it was more work for him to try to explain to this person that he would actually end up explaining to the therapist all of the things that was wrong with him, as opposed to them being helpful to him. So he was just never open to doing it. You know, he had depression, he had issues. You know, I think he has a little, definitely has a little, I wouldn't call it post-traumatic stress necessarily, but he definitely has like some trauma from being in the military. I think he has some trauma just from being his father's son. Like his father is a lot. So yeah, I think that, you know, so he was just never open to it, which then also, you know, goes to feeling like you're not, you don't want to meet me, not even halfway. Like you're definitely not coming hundred percent. Like you're not going to meet me halfway. You know, even though it was really important to me, it just wasn't important to him. And he just never was willing to put in the work that I needed to see, you know, maybe he felt like he was putting in work, but it wasn't the work that I needed. So I know that we talked about this earlier, like when we were catching up, but can you tell our listeners what that like last little final straw that broke the camel's back, that little aha moment was for you with the divorce? Yeah, I sure can. I can tell you the the two exact moments that I knew. We'd been separated for a while and I went to see him with the hopes that I would feel differently. We had not had the final, like, I want a divorce conversation, but things were definitely headed down that path. He knew that the trip was important. So he made comments about how much he was going to how everything, he wanted everything to be great. Like I was going to go and just, I was like, we can stay at your parents' house. That's fine. He's like, no, we have to get a hotel. Like this is weekend is really important. Like everything needs to be great. So we go, we stay at a hotel and we're in the room and he gets up to make himself a drink and he gets up to make himself a drink. And he turns around and he asks me if I would also like a glass of wine. And I was like, yeah, thank you. And in my head at that moment, I found myself literally thinking, 
Oh, that's so nice. Like, look how much he's trying. And like, what? Your <laughs> husband has offered to get you a glass of wine and you think he's trying really hard to the point that you actually like have a thought about it, that you're like, oh my God, look at how much he's trying. That's not fucking trying. If he should be getting me a glass of wine, if he's getting up to make himself a drink anyway, why would you not ask the person? That's just consideration. That's just what you do. I don't even have to be his wife. I could be his friend. I could be a stranger. We're both there having a drink. You should just ask them, can I get you anything? And that, to me, I was like, wow, that is how low the bar is set. The bar is set so low that I am impressed by the effort of him asking me if he, I would like to have a glass of wine. And that's bullshit. And I deserve a lot better than that. And so I, in that moment, I was like, what? No, no, no. I wanted to feel differently on that trip and I didn't. And that moment has stuck with me. And I've told that to many of my friends, you obviously included. Like I knew in that moment, if that was effort, then this was not going anywhere. That says a lot. And I can definitely relate. Oh my God. He opened the door for me. <gasps> he loves me. Right. Like that's no, no, that's common human decency. Right. Exactly. I don't even have to be your partner in life for you to do that. Like that's so dumb. And like the fact that that's where the bar was set was just like ridiculous. And then I was, you know, embarrassed and mad at myself for accepting far less than I deserve for so long. You know, the fact that like it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Rosie, you are the whole package. I mean, Uh-oh. if I do say so myself, I wish, I kind of wish we were both lesbians. <laughs> kind of wish. Um, so easier. I know it really would. I would just be totally supportive of your career. I could work from home, you know, no big deal. Like we would, we would have this down except for my, my cat allergy. That's okay. Yeah. I do the PR for your podcast. Oh, <laughs> I'm like, could you? <laughs> That's actually, hey, let's chat offline about that (laughs) sidebar. Oh my God. No, I'm so, I'm just proud of you. And I think that you have done the best with a shitty situation. I think you tried your best. I think that you should not feel guilty for being happy. I know that has been something that's been heavy on your mind, but I think that you just need to celebrate the fact that you are finally happy and you need to reward yourself with all the yummy good things in this world can bring you. So thank you. Yes. I'm so happy, happier than I've been in a really long time. And it feels amazing. Good. I have one last question. This is a question I ask everyone that comes on the podcast. Okay. So it's kind of like a deep thinker. So if you need some time, you can take some time to think about it. But if you were walking down the street, say in Boston, and you saw your 20 year old self, like you saw 20 year old Rosie across the street, and you saw each other and you were like, oh my God, hi. And you ran up to her, you gave her a big hug. And when you just left her embrace, you look at her and what is it that you tell her? What is it you tell her that you want her to know? I feel like you're, you're going to make me cry. Like I'm like, up, like thinking about like what I would tell my younger self. Like- I know. Cause when I thought about this question, I also cried. So I love you so much. <laughs> I would tell 20 year old Rosie, you are so much stronger than you know. And you are much more powerful than you realize. And you have no reason to not feel confidently about everything that you're doing. You're smart and you're capable and you're a tough cookie and you're going to be just fine. Oh, you sure are a tough cookie. <laughs> yeah, you I sure are. Crying. <laughs> no, 
but like, you don't usually cry. Like you don't cry. Like that's, I've seen you cry maybe like a handful of times in our <laughs> 10 year relationship. On the other hand, I'm like weeping openly, like at all points in time. I mean, geez, I was probably crying the night of that, that murder mystery party, like wanting to go, go home and eat. I was like, oh, I'm hungry. Can we leave? Uh, we didn't get out of there. I was actually going to kill someone. <laughs> <laughs> you were texting me. You were like, where are you? I'm like, I'm just sitting on this fucking couch. Like, can we fucking leave? <laughs> I mean, in theory, it was like a fun thing to do. But now but looking back on all of those, no, people, so like, it'd be one thing if it was like all of our friends or something, but it was, yeah. it was just like weird and like awkward. Yeah. The, you know what I love the event that we went to was the, what was it called? I don't remember where the one that was outside. Yes. That was, oh, I love that event. So great. that was such a fun event to go to. I loved that. There's been so many cool experiences we've had together. And I mean, I just, I'm sad that it's been so long since I've seen you. But on the other hand, I know that the second we see each other, it's the same. It's always the same. And I want to, you know, I want to tell people it's like important to keep the valuable friendships, you know, like even if it's a text here and there or a DM or whatever, just be like, Hey, I miss you. Or, Hey, I love you. Or, Hey, I thought about you today or whatever it is, because you are one of those people that's so important to me that, you know, if I were to hypothetically get married again, which I don't know if that would ever happen, like you would be a person I would call immediately, you know? So it's those people that are important. I agree. Yeah. I do have to, I always say like, especially, you know, we're all so busy now too. It's just like, you don't have to call or text or even see each other every day. There are just some like friendships and people in your life that it's like no time lost every time. So you are definitely one of those people for me. I love you so much. Oh, I love you too. I learned so much stuff about you that I didn't even know. This has been so great. Thank you so much for giving me two hours of your time. Of course. Thank you for having me. Yes, of course. Well, that is it for today from Boston to Las Vegas to Ohio to back here in Houston. I feel like Rosie and I have stood the test of time when it comes to friendship and we've been through some rough bumps and no matter what, I think the takeaway here is to reach out to your friends and be upfront with them and shake them loose a little bit and just say, Hey, are you doing okay? And just really try to get out of them. Even if they're the type that's going to give you a PR answer like Rosie, because she is well-trained. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if I saw her in the White House one day. I mean, maybe not because it's not food beverage related, but she's just like that go-getter. You know, she really is that go-getter type of woman. There's no glass ceiling for her. What glass ceiling? There's no glass. There's no glass in her world. None. I hope you learned a lot about PR, the industry, the ins and outs and how to be successful in a role like Rosie has. Also take a page out of JLo and Ben's book and give yourself some happy, even if it's too soon or you think it's too soon or people are going to judge you for being happy right after your divorce. Who cares? Who cares? Be happy because no one's going to benefit from you playing miserable or remaining miserable. No one's going to benefit from that. Just remember it's about you and your life, especially when you get into your thirties, mid thirties, late thirties, wherever you are in this journey, even your early twenties, there's nothing that is worth being miserable over nothing zero. So do you like Rosie, pick yourself up, dust yourself off and try again. And remember after the show, it's the after party. That's what Rosie has taught us today. Don't forget. 
<laughs> if you're watching on YouTube, like comment and subscribe, don't forget to hit that notification bell. And if you are listening on streaming platforms, make sure to leave us a review. If not, I'm just glad you're here. Thank you so much for joining me on another episode of the Luxury Dropout Podcast. I love you guys and I'll see you on the next one. Mwah. That's a wrap for this episode of the Luxury Dropout. Make sure to visit stephaniejoplin.com to find all of Steph's episodes, including full podcast descriptions and photos of her guests. Until next time, besties.